Are you here? Hey, thanks for stopping by the Paul Leslie Hour, purveyor of interviews with fascinating people. On today's episode, we present an interview with a live event legend, Quint Davis. Quint's the producer and director of the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, one of the world's greatest festivals. He's the CEO of Festival Productions Incorporated, and Paul has wanted to interview Quint for 10 years. Well, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival is simply known as Jazz Fest, been going strong for more than 50 years. This famed annual exhibition of Louisiana's music, food, and culture is the subject of the recently debuted documentary, Jazz Fest, a New Orleans story. From Sony Pictures Classics, this Kennedy Marshall production, Jazz Fest, a New Orleans story, will be playing in theaters nationwide. It's a parade of colors and sounds and culture you won't want to miss. Oh, quick comment. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by people just like you. Simply go to www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. We thank you for keeping this parade going. Okay, we've got Quint Davis with us today. Hey, hey, let's get this started. Hey, it's me. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Thank you. Good morning, Paul. Is it morning? Yes, still morning. It's it's morning where you are. (laughs) Well, thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for letting me do it. Where are you, in Washington? I am in Charleston, South Carolina. Okay, that sounds nice. It's very nice. I'm in New Orleans, Louisiana, about which I am prejudiced. (laughs) Indeed you are, being from there. Well, I'm here. Ladies and gentlemen, the man that I'm with you see there, that's Quint Davis. He is the producer and director of the famed New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, which has been going for 50 plus years now and is one of the truly greatest festivals in the entire world. And it's also the subject of this new documentary, which is excellent. Jazz Fest, a New Orleans story from Sony Pictures Classics, a Kennedy Marshall production, and it's going to be in theaters very soon. So, Quint Davis, what did you think when you first saw the final cut, the, 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 this great documentary about this legendary festival? Wow. Well, I had, I had worked on it with um, Ryan Suffern and Frank Marshall over three years. So I've, I had seen it like 50 times. You know, we'd go through it, make notes send in the notes, see what kind of editing was done, go through it again, go through it again, go through it again. So on a laptop and a little monitor, I had seen it and, and saw it develop. The shock was at the world premiere at South by Southwest, I saw it on a big screen with Dolby sound. And I was just, oh my gosh, you know, cause I'm, I'm a festival maker. I'm not a movie maker. Right. Frank is a movie maker and made a movie not only of the festival, but he made a movie of the origination and birth of the festival, which is a story that's never been told. 
And then he also married that up with little documentaries about the culture, like jazz funerals, that were being displayed in the film. So he wove those three things together, which when I saw it all was, was amazing. Brilliant. So we just had Frank Marshall on here, and I will admit to being in awe of him. What was your first impression when you met this man, Frank Marshall? Well, I, I met him through with Jimmy Buffett somewhere. I, I think he and Jimmy did a play together. <laughs> and I met him there at the uh, opening of the play in New Orleans. And there was an after party. And it was a really good after party. And bobbing was happening. And Frank went over to do the DJ. Frank is an accomplished professional DJ. He had a little computer with all his songs on it. I mean, it was sort of unfathomable to me that the man that produced everything from Color Purple to Indiana Jones to Jurassic Park was, was doing the DJing at an after party. But he was always very nice, very humble, really, and, and very sort of down to earth in, in talking to me. But yet I knew, you know, what, what he did does and what he had done. One of the fascinating things in the documentary is this footage of uh, a somewhat younger Quint Davis. You really get to see, you know, you've been at this for quite some time. If you could somehow have told the guy who was at the very beginning of Jazz Fest, Quint Davis, if you could have told him anything, whether encouragement or advice, what would you have said to that guy who was about to embark on quite a journey? You mean if I had known what was going to happen? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, I would have said that you are the luckiest person in the world, that you have found the one man that's made a worldwide industry out of the least commercial music that there is, which is what my life is all about. You know, jazz, blues, gospel. I mean, these are not commercial musics. And I've just been taken under the wing of, of George Ween, who, who produces that music all over the world. So I would say, stay with this man, which I never had a problem doing. And, you know, one step in front of the other and let your life Un, you know, unload, let your wife, life go forward as it will. Well, I'm glad you can see how lucky you are to have the, uh, the oh. vantage point that you have. It's cool. Yeah, no, it, you know, the, right after the first Jazz Fest, 1970, George started sending me out on things that he did. And the first tour, he sent me out on the tour. I didn't know what any of this was. I knew what the music was, right? But I didn't know what a tour was. And I didn't really know what a festival was. In New Orleans, I got the talent for the first little festival with gospel and all. But I didn't know what a festival was. I just told him, well, I know those people. If you want that music, I can go get it. So he sends me on tour with Duke Ellington for his first tour behind the Iron Curtain. And I've never seen a tour before. We did 44 shows in 42 nights, no days off, and one or two nights in two different countries in the same night. 
So that was my indoctrination into the, the world and life of George Ween that had now become my life. This, I mean, I took B.B. King to Africa for the first time in history. Now, B.B. King was a big part of my listening life. I did that with Muddy, too. To me, and I say this in the film, I'm going to take B.B. King to Africa? You know? Are you <laughs> kidding? And I, when I was a little, I had 145 RPM of his Rock Me Baby and a Kent label, and I would go down to the study, put that 45 on, put the arm over so it would replay constantly, and dance around and sing to that song. And now I'm taking him to Africa for the first time. So that would be like if you were a kid collecting baseball cards in your garage, right? And you get a phone call that says, well, we'd like you to come to New York and pitch for the Yankees in the World Series. Because to me, that's what this was. <laughs> I love that comparison. And one of the things that I do love, especially about this documentary, is both the still photos and some of the archival footage of people who have really, really made a huge impression on American and the world music. Like, I was hoping you could tell us, do you have any vivid memories of someone who I think was one of the best artists ever, Fats Domino? Oh, yeah, because we're both New Orleans boys. George sent me to tour manage Fats Domino and the orchestra throughout Europe. And, well, at one point they told me, hey, you got here at a good time. You got here after the guns. I'm like, oh, okay, that's good. <laughs> but we traveled around in a bus and planes and trains every kind of way. And I became sort of a lifelong intimate friend of Fats's. When we, when we went out there, we had about 28 bags. And it turned out that like 12 of them were his, okay? He had these two steamer trunks. And when you opened it, it was all these shoes he had made in Vegas. You know, he was selling a million albums a week for months. All kinds of pink turtle shoes. But it was just a cover. Because underneath, he had a hot plate, a pots and pans, red beans and rice and he would cook in the room at night and you could go in there and get some red beans from fast he he was amazing he he the jewelry that he wore he had one ring that was a full grand piano with the top up <laughs> i remember <laughs> that he would that he would play with but he was a very shy person he didn't really like interviews i mean when he was on stage he he just would explode really light up and was a great, you know, people know him for his work, for his recorded work and for his big hits. But as far as a musician, man, he was a fantastic. Like, I don't know if people know how great a piano player Elton John is. I, I would equate fast to Elton John. When he's, he has songs everybody knows, when he sits at the piano, his piano playing is fantastic. And really strong and then he's singing songs that he was involved in writing and then the band is an absolute throwback it was a thrill that band had two different drummers that sometimes changed during a song Had two different drummers a bass player two guitar players him on piano a baritone sax 
four tenor saxes and a trumpet. Now that would make this incredible sound. And one of the sax players, Herbert Hardesty, was a sax player who played most of the solos on his records. So you were actually getting the accurate playing on, during the songs. Everything about Fats, Fats was a cook. Fats had a big house. It was pretty fancy, so to speak. And he had a little shotgun house behind it. And he really spent his time living in the shotgun house. And he would cook and take, he, he would bake pies, bake cakes and take them around the neighborhood and give them to people. And he would cook hogshead cheese and all these different things. <laughs> so he, and he had a piano in the house where he could sit down and play. So he, he loved to cook and then he'd give the food away. Just a really, I mean, Fast Domino, like Louis Armstrong from New Orleans, is one of the people that helped shape and change the music of the world. Mm. His first record, The Fat Man, was in 1949. And he really, I, you know, I think about Louis Armstrong and Helia Jackson to some extent that actually helped change the music of the whole world. And Fats was one of those people, as shy as he was. Your passion is very evident. I appreciate you sharing those things about Fats Domino. So is there a musical moment in this film that you really, really think, wow, this, I mean, there's so many, but one that really knocked you out. Yes. There's one that when I saw it, just made all my hair stand up. And I actually, in my notes, went back and had them enlarge the segment. And that was Al Green preaching in that church. Because we have, well, first of all, it was Al Green. <laughs> that just struck me like a bolt of electricity. We have gospel singing in this, in this film, you know, real from the church choir gospel singing. But we didn't have any preaching, preaching by a minister. And that's what Al Green was doing. He was preaching in a church. It was electrifying to me. If, if, to answer your question, if one thing stood out initially, that was it. You have had just about every kind of act there is. I mean, it, you know, you just go through the list, everything from, you know, Dead & Co., The Rolling Stones, Stevie Nicks, Herbie Hancock, every kind of artist. Bob Dylan, who, by the way, is 81 today. Oh, happy birthday, Bob. Absolutely. Is there anyone on your bu bucket list, anyone that you've always wanted to get to go to the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival that you haven't yet? Yeah, I would say there's a lot of people. There, there are some that we miss the window on. Like I always wanted Tina Turner, right? And she's, she's just passed it, performing You uh, 2 would be at the very top of any list. And and not just, you know, the, the biggest, biggest artists. Of course, we had James Brown. We had Bobby Blue Bland. I mean, going through the years, Bobby Womack, thinking back, we, we had so many of these giants. But the one, so in a way, some of those people like Tina are people that we missed. Now, that's not Beyonce. That's not Lady Gaga. That's not some of the other. Well, well, we've had we just we just had Ziggy Marley do an entire Bob Marley show, which is something I've wanted. I don't know my whole lifetime, but I've wanted that for years and years and years because that 
would bring Bob to life, so to speak. And it was it was phenomenal. And that was the first time that ever happened. We had Al Green's first performance of his songs in seven years. Uh, and that was the first time that happened. Uh, we had Pitbull, which was exciting in its own right. So yes, there's people out there, Paul McCartney, that we haven't had that is still possible to have. Something that you uh, talk about in the film quite a bit is the food. And it, the food is as much a star of the film in many ways. If you could pick one thing that you've had at a jazz fest that you'll never forget in terms of culinary, what would it be? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a big question. I don't know about one thing. The, the something crawfish strudel, which is this thing in all this big, Fine pastry is one thing. There's a little booth that has the best chocolate eclair brownie and macaroon on earth. I would go in the morning and get a chocolate eclair. Then I would go to Fatty's Crackling booth and get some hot cracklings out the pot and get a nice coffee. And that would sort of be my re recipe to kick off the day. And, and it didn't. At the festival, I mean, we have exotic foods, right? We have gourmet foods. We have oyster patties and crawfish sacks and trout amandine. And it's amazing to serve hundreds of thousands of servings of gourmet food in a field, in a paper plate for $10 each. I mean, that's, that, that's amazing. But it's not just the, ooh, the soft shell crab sandwich on a buttered bun. That's, that's way up there, too. But some of the most basic things, like fried chicken, like boudin, which is basic to us, probably not basic to the world, boudin, muffalata, they, these are common things here. But the festival, somehow she's gone and find, found the, be the best muffalata I've ever had. And it has to do with the olive salad and its big hunks of olives, whole olives in there. There's a guy across the river who makes this great boudin. Now, I know something outstanding that used to be my number one thing. There's a guy from outside of Lafayette, a man with a restaurant, and he makes some pheasant andouille, pheasant quail andouille gumbo. Pheasant quail andouille gumbo. And it's dark and it's thick. I won't say you can stand a spoon up in it, but it's dark and it's thick. And that was you know, very much a central dish for a lot of times. It's funny, a central dish is crawfish monica, which is crawfish with, with curly pasta in a sauce that he's making. And it's been like the most popular thing at the festival for decades. So you think, oh, well, that's an old thing. It's living on its, you know, um, on its reputation. And so, you know, who knows what. But then you get one. And every year you remember why it's so popular because it's still that good. Yeah, I can go on about the food for <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I hope uh, people who are watching or listening, they're not only inspired to go to Jazz Fest, but also to watch this film. It's going to be in theaters nationwide on June 3rd. It's right now in select cities like New York and Los Angeles. My last question, if somebody 
a hundred years from now is reading about this man, Quint Davis, and his work with the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. And they see an account maybe in this film of all the things that went on. What do you hope people say about Quint Davis in closing? I think that through the success of the festival, we have helped to give traditional music a seat at the table with popular music. Our, our festival in celebrating the, the, tradi- the traditions of American music and specifically the roots of some New Orleans music that's unique to the world, like jazz funerals and Mardi Gras Indians and Cajun and Zydeco music, but that we have been able to popularize that into a festival that draws hundreds of thousands of people and it's music that they don't really know or wouldn't really listen to at home. And to me, like music history is like plumbing. Like you have today's, you know, biggest pop stars and then you have pop stars and it goes back to these kinds of musics. And a lot of times these pipes are broken, right? And it's just whatever the latest thing is, is it without its plumbing? So I think Jazz Fest is a, is a cultural musical plumber. And it goes back and connects the pipes between African music, between initial R&B, between gospel, between blues, and how that's a part of all modern music. Well put. Well, Quint Davis, thank you very much. I'll humbly say, if I can ever be of service, please don't hesitate. And folks, go see this film, Jazz Fest, A New Orleans Story. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Paul. This was one of the best interviews I've ever done. I mean, these questions were really good and made me think of and say things that I haven't really (laughs) had to think of before. Bless you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. All right, sir. Till next time. Y'all come, (laughs) as we say. There's nothing like it. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, the entertainer. Written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour. <laughs>